Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. For God has given to us everything pertaining to life and the spiritual life through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, that through these he has given to us his great and magnificent promises that through these we might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of the world through lust. Before we go to God's word this morning, let's bow our heads together and ask God's direction on our study of the word. Our Father, we're thankful that we can come together this morning in freedom, that we can freely proclaim the truth of your word We are mindful of the fact that there are Christians throughout this world, especially in places like China, places of Muslim countries, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, uh, Nigeria, where they are under opposition, persecution, observation by governments. And, Father, we do pray for them that they could find good, solid biblical teaching. And we know that there are groups that train, groups that provide uh, information for them, biblical truth, and we pray that you might supply their needs. Our Father, we are thankful that we have this building wherein we can meet, where we can be a foundation for the teaching of your word to so many throughout the world who do not have any solid biblical teaching. Father, we pray that you would continue that and that we might not take for granted that which you have supplied for us. And we pray that now as we study your word that we might be refreshed, that we might be strengthened through the Holy Spirit, and that we might be challenged in our walk with you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning I was greeted with a very encouraging email and I just I will give you just a little bit of background Uh, this involves a man by the name of Kurt Norman who is the pastor of a small church in a small town in South Africa and he has been listening online live streaming and everything else that he could over the years And he first reached out to me, I think it may have been as much as 10 years ago, uh, thankful for the fact that we don't charge for any of the material and that he had access to it because he was going to a, uh, the only seminary they had that he could attend was a, that was somewhat conservative, was a reformed seminary in South Africa. Their background is Dutch reformed, which is five-point Calvinist, and lordship, and he was the only dispensationalist he knew of in South Africa. So I put him in touch with a couple that I know, and some of you know, Tom and Cheryl Molinar, that are in South Africa. A couple, two or three years ago, uh, he had started a church or become pastor of a church, and he did, didn't have, they did had no free grace understanding of the gospel. They had no dispensational teaching, and so that's always a bit of a rocky start. But he was uh, uh, looking, for, he said, there's just no one here in South Africa I know of. And so I put him in touch with Tom and Cheryl. They live some seven hours apart. So even though South Africa doesn't look that big on a map, it is. And so this last uh, our act- this last month at Resur- on Resurrection Day, Tom and Cheryl were going in that direction to pick up some uh, friends from Dallas who were coming to visit them, and they all went over to this guy's uh, church, to Kurt's church. And so uh, Tom wrote me, sent me a bunch of pictures, and he said, We were all anxious to meet up with Kurt, and we had a wonderful time of three evenings together at this B&B we had booked in Clerksdorp, close to Kurt's church. We all thoroughly enjoyed our time together, the doctrinal discussions, 
and so clear to see how God works through people and circumstances to bring people together in ways to further his plan. We attended Kurt's church on Resurrection Sunday on the 4th of April, and Kurt presented a perfectly correct message on the resurrection and the grace gospel. We met many in his church and thanked them for their encouraging support of the church and Kurt's ministry. It is truly encouraging to see a young pastor focused on learning God's word, determined to grow in wisdom, knowledge, and the correct grace doctrines of truth, and knowing and accepting correct teaching from your ministry, which continues to give Kurt the solid food of disciplined instruction to have a love in learning knowledge. So that is just uh, an encouragement to all of you who, as I commented during the offering, who financially are a part of the support of this church and Dean Bible Ministries because that fruit that is being produced there in South Africa accrues uh, to you because you are a part of this ministry and we're a part of his ministry. And that's how these things work in God's plan. So we can just rejoice that in an area where there is very little Bible teaching and even less that is correct Bible teaching, uh, we can be thankful that there is uh, the Word of God being taught uh, in that area. So with that, open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, and we are continuing our study of the love of Christ. That is the love that Christ has for us. And as we look at this love, we have to meditate on it. As I pointed out last time, we have to contemplate it. We have to come to understand it, which is not only a lifelong pursuit, but it is a pursuit that will take us into eternity because the love that Christ has for us is an infinite love and we can never fully grasp it as finite human beings, finite creatures. We will never grasp something that is infinite. But what Paul is challenging the Ephesian believers to do and what he is challenging us to do is to continue and to accept a challenge to pursue that through the rest of our lives, to make that a, a high priority in our lives, for this is fundamental to learning how to live uh, the Christian life. When we talk about God's love for us, and we talk about passages like, uh, like uh, John 3.16, that God loved the world in this manner, that we look at the cross, and the cross is that example. And when I talk about you know, coming to understand, or the text talks about coming to comprehend the love Christ has for us, it starts there. And we're going to look at a, a couple of other passages as uh, we go through this morning by way of introduction uh, that focus our attention on that because that is integral to our understanding of the spiritual life. As I pointed out in the last two messages that in Jesus' teaching in John 15 as well as Paul's teaching in Galatians 5 and Ephesians 5, that the love for that Christ's love for us is going to be produced in us if we abide in Christ, if we walk by means of the Spirit, if we walk in the light or walk in His love, as it's stated in in Ephesians uh, chapter five. That is integral to our, our spiritual life because the fruit of the Spirit is, first of all, love, as it's listed in Galatians 5.22, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. And all of that is reflects the character of Christ, and that what that is God's plan for us. So many people wonder, well, what's God's plan for my life? To grow to spiritual maturity and reflect the character of Christ. Everything else is secondary. You may think your career is first. You may think your marriage is first or finding a spouse is first or your children, and they are very, very important. 
But the most important is God's plan to produce in you and in me the character of Christ. One of the most difficult things for any of us to truly comprehend and then turn around and implement in our lives is Christ's love for us and to reflect that. We use terms, a couple of terms that we use around here. The first is unwieldy, and people misunderstand it, but it makes a point, and that is calling it impersonal love. Now, that doesn't mean that a person isn't involved or that it is somehow uh, keeping people at arm's length, which is how some people understand it. It is to emphasize the fact that we don't need to have a personal understanding, knowledge, or relationship with the people that we are to show Christ's love to. You don't know the name of the person who's checking you out at the grocery store. You don't know the name of that crazy person who just cuts you off in traffic. Uh, You'll never know who they are or have a personal knowledge of them, but we are to treat them in the love of Christ, in biblical love, in what is called Christian love. And we have to understand that, that it's not based on how well we like a person, how likable a person might be, whether we know them, whether we have any kind of relationship with them at all. It is an objective love that comes from our soul directed to this person that we may or may not know because it is God's plan for us, and it is part of our Christian life to demonstrate that kind of a love, that they may do things that are cool to us, they may do things that are vicious, they may do things that hurt us deeply, but we are to respond as Christ did to those who uh, were responsible for his crucifixion, for his suffering on the cross which he demonstrated when he prayed to the Father, uh, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And that is hard. That kind of love, as I pointed out last time, is a kind of love that we can't manufacture. It's not artificial. That goes to the prime directive in the spiritual life that Jesus gave is, I command, you, give you a new commandment that you love one another even as I have loved you. And by this... Your love for one another shall all know that you are my disciples. So first of all, what we've what I've covered just in the introduction is it's a love that is produced by God the Holy Spirit as a result of abiding in Christ, walking by the Spirit, walking in the light. It's not something we can gin up on our own, even though we often try to, to out of the flesh because we just know we ought to do that. But it is a genuine love that comes from a transformation that only God the Holy Spirit can produce in our lives. And as I mentioned a minute ago, teaching through this church history course, both at the beginning when I was dealing with a lot of and reading a lot of of, um, accounts of Christians who were uh, arrested, uh, tortured, thrown into the Colosseum to either fight with wild animals or... Uh, something else, and then later as you get into the Reformation period and there are those who, uh, you know, in the various religious wars, there were tens of thousands that were killed in just the opposition of the Roman Catholic Church to the Protestants. They just arrested, tortured, and in... Thousands of cases, they burned them at the stake. So this this was just normative throughout the Middle Ages because the belief was that if anybody was a heretic, they deserved to be burned at the stake, and that was it. And Protestants were guilty of the same thing, but to a far, far lesser degree. We always get blamed uh, for being making it a lot worse and not being perfect, but when you have people who were coming out of the kind of world that existed in the period before the Reformation. Uh, I use the analogy, it's like somebody walking out of a bog of quicksand with wearing snowshoes. And as you 
get higher and higher walking out of that bog, all that filth and dirt and mud comes off of you, but it takes time. It, you don't just walk out of it just as clean as if you just spent three hours in the shower. It takes time. It takes time for a culture to change and for people within a culture like that to change their views and to work it all out. Uh, it, as I pointed out a couple of weeks ago, uh, uh, Martin Luther, in his stand at the uh, Diet of Varms, uh, based his stand on his conscience before God and his knowledge of the Word of God. And he had to stand. He said, I must stand on the word of God. Here I stand. I can do nothing else. But that argument was fundamentally based in a new understanding of the freedom of the individual's conscience before God. It took, that was 1521, 500 years ago, this, this last three or four weeks ago in April. So what happens is that, that that's 1517 to 1770s, 1760s, 1770s. You have 250 years that go by to produce one of its most significant fruits, which is the birth of this nation on the principle of our that we live our lives before God. That's the foundation for the First Amendment. These things don't transform overnight. And ever since July 4th, 1776, this nation has been in the crosshairs uh, of Satan's scope. And he has been doing everything he could. And it's taken him uh, about 200, and it's almost been 50 years, 250 years to destroy it. And we're witnessing a lot of the fruits of his work that was the groundwork of which was laid back in the 19th century. And what's going to happen is if he is successful is we're going to go back to that same horrible pagan world that existed 400 years ago where those who believe in the truth of God's word are going to be persecuted. And as I read these stories of these, these martyrs and their, the way they demonstrate the love of Christ to those who are lighting the flames around their feet is just amazing. You just say again and again, how in the world can someone be that kind and gracious and loving and generous to those who are, have tortured them and are now burning them at the stake? and giving them the gospel, and praying for them while they are being engulfed in the flames. I mean, that is what this passage is talking about. And the only way to get there, it isn't because you come to Bible class and come to church week after week, and you take lots of notes, and you memorize some scripture and a few other things, is we have to practice. Remember, love for others, that impersonal love or unconditional love, that's the other term that we use, toward others means that we're not conditioning our response on their actions. Think about that. How we treat other people is not to be conditioned on how they treat us or what they do to other people. It is to be based on how God, for Christ's sake, loved us and forgave us. And so this is something that just can't happen overnight, and it is something that comes, as I pointed out, because that unconditional or impersonal love for others is part of the spiritual skills, one of the spiritual skills that God has uh, outlined to us in Scripture for handling adversity and difficulty and problems in life. And every skill, whether you are, uh, for example, if you're a musician if you're an athlete, if you're an artist, if you are uh, if you are someone involved in any sort of trade where you are a craftsman and you are working with your hands, you didn't get there the first time you picked up your tools or you picked up your instrument or you went out on the football field and uh, are in the front yard with your dad tossing around a ball. Uh, 
uh, you got there, we practice, 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 and practice. And that's what every believer is supposed to do. We have to practice these disciplines of the, of the Christian life. We have to be reading our Bible daily and reflecting upon it, not just letting our eyes go over the words because they're familiar to us. That's one reason I like to read in different translations. But we have to practice it, practice it, practice it, practice it when we're driving, practice it when we're in the grocery store or the checkout lane or when we're dealing with uh, family members or we're dealing with uh, people we know in the neighborhood or whatever. We have to practice that. And that's what this is, passage is really all about. And this prayer of Paul's, as I've pointed out, uh, as we go through reviewing on 3.14 and the beginning, he says he's praying. He is bending his knee to God the Father, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 16, he begins to give us uh, the specifics of what he's praying for. He is praying that God would grant you according to the wealth of his glory, which is infinite, that grant you according to the wealth of his glory to be strengthened with might, an important word uh, that we'll get back to in the benediction, the last two verses of the section. Uh, Strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. And then that is the next step on that staircase, and that produces a result so that Christ would make his home in our life. That's abiding in Christ. That's That's not Christ taking up his indwelling position in us, that is the result of ongoing fellowship, which is from a Greek word koinonia, meaning a partnership, walking together toward a common goal. So the first result that Paul mentions is so that Christ will be at home in us, so that we're having a rich, personal walk with the Lord. But that is not the end. The the, that is merely a means to the first purpose, which is in verses 17 to 19, which is where we are uh, still, that we can begin to comprehend the immensity of Christ's love for them with the ultimate result that we might be spiritually mature, reflecting the love of Christ in our lives. And so that is the pathway Uh, to spiritual growth. And this ought to be a prayer, if you're not memorizing it, at least getting the principles down, that this is what we should be praying for ourselves, that God would make this a reality. The first result is stated in 317, that Christ may make his home in your hearts through faith. In your hearts is in your thinking, in your soul, Make it be comfortable in your soul through faith and that you and the way it's translated in English needs to be clarified, being rooted and grounded in love. And this should be translated because you have already been completely rooted and grounded by means of love. So that love has got to be God's love. There are some that think that you're rooted and grounded in your love, but that's, that doesn't work. Uh, my love is not worth much. I need to be rooted and grounded in God's love, which I first become acquainted with when I trust Christ as Savior. And so that is the first result for the purpose that uh, you, because you have already been rooted and grounded in God's love, this is the first purpose. So you have a result that Christ uh, makes his home with you, and then that is for the purpose that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints. Now, this isn't talking about fellowship with the saints, but this is that this is for all the saints. Now, when Paul is talking in Ephesians three. To whom does he refer when he says to all the saints? Think contextually. This is your pop quiz this morning. Think contextually. He's thinking about Jews and Gentiles now together in one body in Christ, all the saints. Previously, he's talked about uh, what happened to both, what happened to us together, that together we were made alive together in Christ, that we have 
been raised together and seated together. So we have all that together uh, language. And then in uh, 2.19 and following, he talks about the fact that we're no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And he's not talking about Old Testament there because he defines household of God as what is now being built in terms of the church. And so the, the purpose, uh, the old pur- purpose here is that we may be able to begin to comprehend with all the saints. And then he describes this with these dimensions, what is the width and the length and the depth and the height. And people have come up, as I said last time, with all kinds of different uh, ideas about that, what that describes. But contextually, it's describing what he speaks of at the beginning of verse 19, to know the love of Christ. And by using this this, uh, idiom, width and length and depth and height, he's, he's really talking somewhat hyperbolically about the expansiveness, the incomprehensibility, and the limitlessness of the love of Christ. But yet, even though we can never know it exhaustively, we can never know everything there is to know about the love of Christ, we are to pursue knowledge of that throughout our uh, Christian lives so that it has an impact on how we are. The more we reflect on how Christ has loved us, the more God the Holy Spirit will use that in our lives to transform our understanding of what it means to love one another as Christ has loved us. And so that brings us to where we were last time, in uh, looking at what this this means in terms of the love of Christ, and I went to three passages uh, last time in order to correlate what is taught there. John 15, uh, Galatians chapter 5, and Ephesians chapter 5. And people often ask me, well, how can you relate this and that together? How can you say that? Well, you just look at certain things. Galatians, I mean, in John 15, 1 through 8, Jesus says, abide in you and you will bear fruit. You'll bear more fruit. You'll bear much fruit. Okay, so you have three different levels, much more fruit. You'll have three different levels of fruit production. But what is the soul condition that he talks about? He says, abiding in him. And the result then uh, is fruit, more fruit, and much fruit. Then the next place is in Galatians 5.16, where the command is to walk by means of the Spirit. And in verses 22 to 23, it lists the fruit of the Spirit. So if you have these two passages and you have one condition in one passage that produces fruit, and you have another condition stated with another terminology in another passage, and that's the sole condition for producing fruit, then those two conditions must be talking about roughly the same thing. So that abiding in Christ and walking by means of the Spirit are roughly the same thing. You can't do one without the other, and so by doing one, you're doing the other, and the result is that God the Holy Spirit will produce fruit. That's part of what is included in Paul's prayer here, that we should be strengthened through the Holy Spirit in the inner man. And then we come to Ephesians 5. So just for most of you, you just simply have to turn the page in your Bible, and you'll be at Ephesians 5. And so we'll be coming to that soon. We have about two more messages to wrap up Ephesians uh, 3. Next week we'll cover the benediction, the last two verses, and then I'm going to come back and get, give us a good review of what we've learned so far in the first three chapters because that's the foundation for the last three chapters. And the last three chapters will go somewhat uh, a little bit more quickly than the first. The first chapter was a long slug. I know that. We had a lot of things to deal with there. But look at what Paul says here in um, Galatians 
I mean, Ephesians chapter 5 at the the very beginning. Let's get a little context, okay? I'm just going to go back to um, 31 and 32 of the previous chapter because remember, there were no verse markers. Paul didn't write in terms of verses. He didn't say, okay, now I'm going to write verse 3, now I'm going to write verse 4. And there weren't chapter divisions. So this was all read uh, contextually. He says, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, Uh, clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. So he's talking about the fact that we're to take the operations of that person we were before we were saved and remove that like we're taking off a coat. And instead, we are to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. And the word there isn't the most familiar word for forgiving, which is afiemi. It is the word charizomai. And you can hear charis at the beginning of that word. That's the Greek word for grace. So charizomai is treating somebody graciously, and it comes to mean forgiving them. Both afiemi and charizomai are used in accounting context and banking context to speak about the forgiveness or the canceling of a loan. And so here, by emphasizing grace, what Paul is doing is emphasizing the root of forgiveness is being gracious to someone, which is unmerited favor. They don't deserve you to forgive them, and you know that, and they probably know it but we're to forgive them anyway because that's what Christ did for us. Be kind to one another, uh, tenderhearted, being graciously forgiving to one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as little children. And what does he say? Walk in love. That takes us back to the foundation he's laid in this prayer at the end of chapter 3. Walk in love. That metaphor of walking is the common metaphor that is used to describe a person's lifestyle and to describe also that work of fellowship of two people walking uh, together towards a common goal. The Old Testament, one of the prophets says, how can two walk together unless they are agreed? So if we have sin that we are pursuing in our life, we can't be walking with Christ. We can't be walking in fellowship with God because we have a different objective. It's self-absorption and self-indulgence. And so we have to confess sin. That's where confession of sin starts to come in in order to restore that rapport and walk together. And we are to walk uh, by means of love as Christ also loved us. That takes us right back to John 13, 34, and 35, that we are to love one another as Christ loved us and gave himself for us And then he goes on to say, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. And then he goes back to talking about what we have to lay aside, but fornication and all uncleanness and covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting uh, for the saints. Now, that's really interesting because in a context like Ephesus, or a context of the Old Testament, we've talked about this in Second Peter and in Judges on Tuesday night, that, that part of this fertility worship that dominated the pagan world, uh, that's what you talked about, a lot about, that your, your whole religion was based on going up and having, uh, and fornicating with the priests, priests or priestesses in the pagan temple, in the fertility cults, and they were everywhere. And so he says, you don't even talk about this. It's not fitting for the saints. Neither filthiness nor foolishness, foolish talking or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather, there we have it again, giving of thanks, focusing on that attitude of of gratefulness and gratitude towards God. And then skip down to um, verse 8. He said, because this is going to give us another walk command. For you were once darkness, 
but now are light in the Lord. And then it says, walk as children of light. So we walk in love in verse 2, and we walk as children of light when we get down to verse 8. And then there's an explanation, and it reads, if you're using the King James or New King James, it reads, for the fruit of the Spirit. But if you're reading in one of the modern translations based on the, uh, basically the, the older manuscripts, the ones found in, 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 in Egypt, then it will read fruit of the light. Now I can explain where that comes from because it just said walk, uh, walk as children of light and your walk in light of the Lord. So there, there's a word tra- uh, transposition there. Um, the majority text, that refers to the majority of ancient manuscripts has spirit. And I believe that that is the superior reading there. Uh, either one, it's talking about this, basically the same, same thing. But for the fruit of the spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. So what's the sole condition here for producing this fruit? It's going to be walking in love and walking in light. They're, they're, they go together. And so if the sole and necessary condition for producing fruit is to abide in Christ or to walk by means of the Spirit or to walk in love or walk in the light, then what we're seeing is that those four commands are all talking about different facets of the same thing. And it, it is accomplished through the Spirit and that close harmony with Christ, that rapport. So verse 18 says that the first purpose that Paul is praying for, uh, are the fir- yeah, you have the first result in verse 17, and the purpose of that result is with the purpose that you, because you have already been rooted and grounded in God's love, that happened when you trusted Christ as Savior, that you might be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height. And so that's what this is focusing on, is that ability to comprehend to grasp, to understand with our mentality uh, the extent of Christ's love for us. See, Christianity emphasizes thinking. It's not about emotion. It's not about how we feel. And there's nothing wrong with having uh, warm feelings when we think about what Christ did for us. And sometimes we can get overwhelmed with emotion. There's nothing wrong with that. What's wrong is making that a necessary sign of worship or making it a necessary sign of spiritual spirituality or spiritual growth, which is what a lot of people do. But spiritual growth is always based on learning the word. It is Romans 12 too. It is not being pressed into the mold of the world, but being transformed by the renewing of your mind, of your thinking, take getting flushing out all of the garbage that comes from human viewpoint and paganism and replacing it with the standards of God's Word and the practices of, of, of God's Word. And so we are to comprehend those things. So I've retranslated that with the result that you, because you have already been rooted and grounded in God's love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of God. See, that talks about an intellectual activity, and actually, biblically, love is something that is that comes from a mindset, a way of thinking, not an emotion. And that's why people get so confused. They get, and that's why marriages fail, is everybody thinks that love is some sort of emotional feeling. And then when that goes away, they think, oh, well, I've got to go find somebody else. But Scripture says that, it's, that love is a mentality. It's a way of thinking about other people that is based upon humility. And so uh, we are to know the love of Christ, which means we have to learn about the love of Christ, and that it passes knowledge. That's the Greek word verb, gnosko, which means to know 
are to come to know. Primarily, it has this idea that we are to acquire knowledge about this. It is something, uh, something that we learn and something that uh, we spend time uh, studying and thinking about. And it's not just sort of an academic knowledge, but it becomes an experiential knowledge. It's not just our, potent, our, our positional love uh, that uh, we, we have from Christ, but it is experiential. It's something that is applied in our day-to-day, uh, day-to-day life. So we are to know the love of Christ and that word love is the word agape. Now, agape has a lot of different meanings. It is the other word that is primarily used in the Greek New Testament. There's one other place where another word is used, but it's so rare. But the two big words are agape and uh, 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 agape and philos. And philos is a more intimate love, uh, the love of friends. Uh, but agape can involve people who don't know each other. But uh, And in Scripture only says that God has philos love for believers. He has agape love for unbelievers. But he only that's why when you go to Revelation, it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. That's not a salvation verse because in the verse before it says that, that Christ loved them and the word there is phileo. And so that it refers to the fact that God has a relationship with them. They're saved, but they're disobedient. And Christ is wanting to come in so that I can sup with you, which is fellowship. The church, that church was excluding Christ from the life of the church. They were not walking in fellowship. So we are to know the love of Christ. That is that agape love, which is, that's the word that's used in John 3.16. That's the word that's used uh, when you get to John 13, uh, 34 and 35. That's the word that's used in Galatians 5.22 for the fruit of the Spirit. So to know the love and of Christ isn't love for Christ. See, that's an ambiguous phrase in English as it is in Greek. It can mean either love from Christ or love to Christ. But if it's love to Christ, it's human love. And that's not what I'm supposed to comprehend. I need to comprehend that love that is from Christ because only that love passes knowledge. And this is the Greek word hooperbalo, which has the idea of a balo is a word for throwing, casting something, and it's probably related to our word ball. And hooper is beyond, so it has to do with something that is surpassing, something that exceeds anything. So it exceeds knowledge. It's not that it's contrary to knowledge, but it is exceeds it. And that word for knowledge is gnosis, which in this context, uh, in this context could very well simply mean it goes far beyond just academic knowledge or intellectual knowledge. It has to do with the application of that in our day-to-day experience. And then we come to the, uh, to the next purpose, the second purpose that is stated there, to know that expresses purpose, to know, uh, I mean, excuse me, that you may be fulfilled. That's the ultimate result is that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That introduces that ultimate result, that you may be filled. And that's the word that is on the left. That is the word plerao, same word that is used in Ephesians 5.18 to be filled by means of the Spirit. And here we are to be filled with something. And that's what it means is to have something filled up to be full of. And so here what it's talking about is the fullness of God. Well, what in the world is that? And one of the problems we have with that is that in the way some translations translate it as if it is uh, an absolute, as if you, you you can be right now filled with all the fullness of God. Well, the fullness of God refers to his character and we can't ever be full of that. It's infinite. We're just a creature. But it has the idea of a, of a process that you may be filled up 
in the process of your spiritual growth with the fullness of God. And that word pleroma has the idea really of all that God is, referring to his his character. It's used several times in uh, in Ephesians. And it is used in Ephesians 1.10 to refer to the future millennial kingdom as the fullness of the times. But that's not related to what we're looking at. In Ephesians 1.22, in Paul's prayer there, he says, um, as he concludes the first chapter, he says, and he put all things under his feet, and gave him, that is Christ, to be head or to be the authority over all things to the church, which is his body. So we're all members of the body of Christ. Remember, chapter 2 talks about the fact that it's a new man, a new household. Uh, it's a, 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 a new, new man, uh, new person, new household, new temple. And he says in the... Um, which is his body, the fullness of him. So remember, if you look back at Ephesians chapter 2, and it talks about the fact that he's building together this new household, this new temple, and that at the end of chapter 2, he says in verse 21, in whom the whole building being being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you are also being built together for a dwelling place of God the Holy Spirit. So it is that that, that the character of Christ that is to fill up our lives, but that doesn't all happen at once. It'll never happen fully in this life, but it is the goal, and that's what is expressed here by uh, in, in um, 3.19, by the by the uh, there's a Greek preposition here that indicates that this is the end result uh, that we're to be pursuing. Now we'll never fully achieve it, but we are to continue to pursue it. It's like if you are involved in any sort of competitiveness, whether it's sports or athletics or dance or any uh, uh, any kind of academics, uh, you will never achieve ex- uh, perfection, never. But you pursue perfection. Vince Lombardi said we can never achieve perfection, but if we pursue it, we just might achieve excellence. That's the idea. So uh, you may fill, be filled with all the fullness of God. We looked at Ephesians one twenty two and 23. Colossians one nineteen and 20 really gives us a, a little more of a sense of what this means in context. Context talking about Christ in one nineteen, he says, "For it pleased the Father that in Him all the fullness should dwell." All the fullness is what? Well, that's described in Colossians two nine. For in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That's all of that. That shows that Christ was fully divine. And he has all of the attributes of Christ, of God, to their fullest extent because he is equally God. So, so when we see this phrase in Ephesians 3.19, it's talking about developing in us that character of Christ, which is exactly what we have uh, stated by Paul elsewhere, Romans 8, 28 and 29, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Well, what is that purpose? It's at the end of the next verse. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined or appointed, as we've studied, to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's what's being worked out in us. We're to be conformed to the image of his son. The character of Christ described in Galatians 5.22 as the fruit of the spirit is what God is developing in us. And so as we come to the end of the uh, prayer in verse 19, that is the ultimate result as for us in Paul's words elsewhere to be conformed to the image of Christ. And that thought is so profound for him that it leads him to just uh, just spontaneously express 
this great benediction coming up in uh, 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly, Paul's at a loss for words to describe the fullness of it. Uh, It's beyond anything, he goes on to say, that we can ask or think beyond anything we can imagine. And it's according to the power of, that works in us. What's that power? Ephesians 1. It's the power of the resurrection. It's the power of God. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. And so next time we'll come back and look at that benediction and the significance of what he says there. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to reflect upon these things, to be reminded that we are to take the time to be quiet, to be alone, to reflect in our study on Christ, thinking about who he is and especially what he did on the cross and how that that uh, demonstrates your love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Even though we were obnoxious, hostile, at enmity with you, You did all of this for us, and we need to think more about that and what that means. That's what Paul is driving at in this prayer. Father, we pray for those who are uh, not here, those who are listening, those who uh, may have never trusted Christ as Savior, that they would come to understand that that is necessary. That's the starting point for the Christian life is to believe Christ died on the cross for our sins, that at the cross you imputed to him in your justice, you credited him with our sins so that he could pay the penalty for those sins as our substitute, and that simply by trusting in him, believing that he did that for us, we have everlasting life. It's not based on anything that we can ever do. It is based on him and him alone. For when we trust in him, then we receive as a free gift from you his righteousness. It doesn't change us from the inside out, but it does clothe us in his righteousness. So you are, uh, you look at us as being justified. Father, we pray that you would make that clear to anyone who needs it. Father, for us, we pray that we might uh, not take lightly that which you have taught us this morning and that it may transform our thinking. In Christ's name, amen.